Tonight's reading will be from 1 Kings 4, 20 through 34, and also 1 Kings 5, 13 through 18. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sun, as the sand by the sea. They were eating, drinking, and rejoicing. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms of Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They offered tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provisions for one day were 150 bushels of fine flour and 300 bushels of mill. 10 fattened oxen, 20 range of oxen, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, rosebucks, and pen-fed poultry. For he had dominion over everything west of the Euphrates, from Tipha to Gaza, and over all the kings of the west of the Euphrates. He had peace on all the surrounding borders. Throughout Solomon's reign, Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, each man under his own vine and his own fig tree. Solomon had 40,000 saws of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Each of those deputies, for a month in turn, provided food for Solomon and for everyone who came to King Solomon's table. They neglected nothing. Each man brought the barley and the straw for the chariot teams and the other horses to the required place according to his assignment. God gave Solomon wisdom, very great insight and understanding as vast as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East, greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone, wiser than Ethan, the Ezraite, and Haman, and Kokol, and Darda, the son of Mahol. His reputation extended to all the surrounding nations. Solomon composed 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 105. He described trees from the cedar in Lebanon to the hyssop growing out of the wall. He also taught about animals, birds, reptiles, and fish. People came from everywhere, sent by every king on earth who had heard of his wisdom to listen to Solomon's wisdom. 513 through 18. The King Solomon drafted forced laborers from all Israel. The labor force numbered 30,000 men. He sent 10,000 to Lebanon each month and shift. One month they were in Lebanon, two months they were at home. Adonaram was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had 70,000 porters, 80,000 stonecutters in the mountains, not including his 3,000 deputies in charge of the work. They ruled over the people doing the work. The king commanded them to quarry large, costly stones to lay the foundation of the temple with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Haram's builders, along with the Jebulites, quarried the stone and prepared the timber and the stone for the temple's construction. Brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord. So, King Solomon brought peace and prosperity to all of Israel at the same time he destroyed her. In order to develop that thesis, I wanted to go back and remind us of uh, several texts that give us God's vision for Israel, that talk about 
the mission of God in the world. So the first one, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he's promised him. So, Remember that God's solution for healing the broken world is to create a nation, a people, and that they are to bless the nations. Keep that in mind as we go further. The next verse, uh, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you're entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? So, second point to keep in mind. First one Israel's created to be a blessing to the nation. Second one, Israel is to be distinct in the way that they lead, in the way that they conduct their married life, in the way that they worship, in the way they care for the poor, and everything else. Those are very important to keep in mind. Now, the book of Deuteronomy prepares Israel for life in the promised land, and the next verse is specific instruction to Israel's kings. So keep this in mind. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I'll set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who's not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said, you shall never return that way again, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And then last, just a summary quote from Christopher Wright's book on Old Testament ethics. God's answer to the international blight of sin was a new community of international blessing a nation that would be the pattern and model of redemption, as well as the vehicle by which the blessing of redemption would eventually embrace the rest of humanity. God's purpose was to create a new community of people who in their social life would embody those qualities of righteousness, peace, justice, and love that reflect God's own character and were God's original purpose for humanity. Okay, have to keep all of that in mind when you study the book of Kings, and particularly the life of Solomon. Now, our story tonight picks up in chapter 4, where uh, the, the historian gives two lists of officials. And a lot of times when you come across these lists, when you're reading the Bible, they just seem real boring, and that there's nothing in them that really is helpful. And sometimes they're just real boring, and there's nothing in them that's really all that helpful. <laughs> But this is not that way. Um, what Solomon does, first of all, is he descri- the, the, the historian describes Solomon's organizational chart. And I won't read all of it, but now um, King Solomon was king over all Israel. 
And these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Arup and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Aod, was a recorder. And on and on and on. Now, there's two things that are important about this list. First of all, many of the names mentioned in the list are men who are active in David's reign. So one of the things that is going on here is we're seeing that this is the continuation of the line of David. Remember, God promised David that he would bring a king from him that would reign on the throne. So that's part of what's going on here. There's something else that's going on here. This summary is describing the organizational structure Solomon uses to run this new kingdom that's expanding and growing. And what's significant about it, historians tell us, is he borrowed it from Egypt. It's not something that I would naturally know. It's not going to be in your precious moments devotional. But it's part of the background is that Solomon has done what we naturally do when we don't know what to do. He's just looked around him for best practices. And the gold standard of, of running kingdoms in his part of the world was Egypt. So he just takes their org chart and plasters it uh, over Israel. Now, you can't blame him for that. Everybody did that. It was very efficient, and it made them very prosperous. But do you remember where we started? Israel was not supposed to run things like everybody else did. They were supposed to be different. And Israel starts to lose her focus and forget her mission very early in this story, and part of it is because she starts to be led according to the best practices of Egypt. And this tends to happen to the people of God throughout history. Uh, When Constantine converts in the 4th century, he makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. He reorganizes the whole church. The church originally was kind of a fluid, underground, uh, spirit-led, almost guerrilla organization. Solomon converts, changes everything. And before you know it, the church starts to look exactly like the Roman Empire. The empire has an emperor. The church has an emperor. Call him the pope. Uh, it's broken into dioceses. Dioceses? What's the plural of dioceses? Dioceses. The empire is broken into all these little dioceses, and the church is broken into the same thing. They start to build palaces for their uh, for their kings, their leaders. After a while, they developed an army to defeat the infidel. So you see the same thing happen again and again and again in the history of the church. Now. Paul warns, Romans 12.1, don't be conformed to the world. So one of the things that I think is one of the most difficult questions to ask, both in church leadership, but also in your leadership of your businesses, uh, your nonprofits, your family, your department, your sports teams, am I just modeling the patterns of the world in the way that I lead? Have I conformed my company to the ways of the world? Have I conformed my ministry to the best practices of the ways of the world? Am I leading my my band according to the best practices of the world? Or 
Is there something distinctively Christian about what I'm doing? And that's hard, right? Because everything that the world says about leadership isn't wrong. We should study best practices. I mean, doesn't Moses plunder the Egyptians? He takes all these great things on the way out. But yet God says, you're too Egyptian. I remember I I told you that I quit going to pastor's conferences about 12 years ago. Uh, One of the reasons was the last one I went to. um, Partly, they're really expensive. And I I forget where it was. It was some nice hotel. We were talking about cities. That's always fun, going to conferences on poverty where you're in $200 rooms. (laughs) But so anyway, we're there. I'm, I'm sorry, I won't be so cynical the rest of the night. So, and I go, oh, great, I'm trying to learn how to reach the city, what do we do? And it turns out to be kind of this big marketing thing where dozens of evangelical leaders are paraded up on this platform for five minutes to tell us what they do so that we can hire them. And all of their titles are CEO or CEO and director or CEO, president, founder, director, uh, Grand Poobah, or whatever. You know, it was even if you started a ministry in your mother-in-law's basement and had a laptop and a mouse on your payroll, you were the CEO and the director of everything. And I just thought, what are we doing? We've become so enamored with the Harvard Business School that we just try to ape it. So th- this is one of the things that the church constantly struggles with. Um, now, the next little part of, of, of this story, equally boring, is also important because in verses 7 to 20, it says Solomon had 12 officers over all of Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month in the year. What's he talking about? Taxes. Came to church tonight to hear a sermon on taxes. Okay. I'm not going to read you all those names. He goes through all the different names of the people that were responsible for collecting uh, the taxes. And then he ends in verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and they drank and they were happy. Now, why is this a bad thing? Solomon is just doing the things that kings are supposed to do. Everybody does this. This was King 101. This was King for Dummies. Now, you study the list. You notice something. There's one little tribe that doesn't pay any taxes. His. Judah. Judah, where Jerusalem is, where Solomon lives, is exempt while all the other tribes pay taxes to fund a very lavish urban elite lifestyle. We read it, right? Bushels of... of all sorts of things. Solomon loved to eat and he loved to entertain people, which again was what everybody did. You showed you were blessed by God by eating lots of oxen and stuff like that. Now, remember what God had said to Israel's kings in Deuteronomy 17? Don't get really rich. Don't get all those horses. Remember in the ancient world, horses are tanks. You know, that's what that's what horses were, were armies. Don't show off. Well, this is going to cause big problems later for him, and civil war will erupt because of this policy after he dies. Now, the kingdom is prosperous. Chapter 4, verse 20, we just read, verse 25. 
Judah and Israel lived in safety, and every man under his vine and under his fig tree. That was uh, their language for saying everybody had you know, jobs and a, and a way to make a living. And here is what is so tricky about this. Israel is prosperous and blessed. And Solomon is wise and loves God, but the blessing of prosperity, or maybe we shouldn't, let's not say blessing yet. Let's say Israel is prosperous based on a shaky foundation. And what I want to suggest to you, and and this is kind of hard to think about, and I'm kind of just exploring it myself, but what I want to suggest to you is that prosperity is not always a proof of God's blessing. I think we need to say that. Wealthy people are not always wealthy because God's blessed them for their godliness. Poor people aren't always poor. Martyrs in two-thirds world countries aren't always martyred because they're not godly. Matter of fact, the calculus of the kingdom often goes the other way, doesn't it? seems to me that a God I know wound up on a cross. So, this is kind of hard to, to, to kind of play with a little bit, but in this story we have the kingdom of Israel being prosperous, and one of the reasons is because they're treating people unjustly. Now, on Tuesday night, uh, some of you, I think, here went to this. The campus ministries all got together, and that in itself is a remarkable thing. There's many, many campus ministries. They all came together, and they, they hosted a, a night called How the Church Should Respond to Racism. And uh, I, it was over at Calvary Chapel. And so I went and uh, had a very powerful speaker. Uh, his name was Mark Charles. And he went over a lot of American history. And the point that he wanted to make was that he, he argued that America, in part, has prospered because of unjust... He was a Native American Indian. Because of unjust treatment of Indians and black people. Now, you know, if I were telling the story of America and teaching American history, I would also want to point out many virtuous things that I think America did that uh, also led to prosperity, but I... I can't deny his point historically. Just can't, can't deny it. And I'd never really heard what he said about Indians, which was, was really, rough, really rough stuff. His point is well taken. Sometimes we are prosperous on the backs of others that are treated poorly. Let me give you two examples. This is old news. You, you, you've all heard this, but... Uh, one mark of American prosperity is cheap clothing, right? Our, our dollar goes a long way. We can go to the mall and get nice clothing that's very inexpensive. Here's uh, one news story. It's been 16 years since Charles Kernigan made Kathy Lee Gifford cry on national TV, revealing that her... Can I get just a little more, Rocky? Um, uh, revealing that her Walmart-sold clothing line was produced by Honduran children working 20-hour shifts. Uh, but not that much has changed. Looking back on the movement and its achievements in an interview, Kernigan sounds defeated, um, even as he reels off the list of horrific factories exposed by this research project. As it turns out, most Americans still don't know about the conditions under which the clothes they wear were produced. 
It was ridiculous, he said. In fact, it was one of the worst factories we've seen. There was child labor, people being beaten, cheated of their wages. Wages were very low. Male supervisors would constantly press young women to have sex with them. So the re- one of the reasons we can go to the mall and get a nice shirt for 20 bucks is, is because uh, sweatshops. Now, take the iPhone 6. Uh, we benefit from a very competitive computer market. And one of the ways companies keep the costs down is by finding cheaper and cheaper labor. Here's another story. Uh, Apple's iPhone 6 may be a hit, but according to an industry watchdog, the Chinese laborers who make it are toiling in poor working conditions. Uh, the investigator claimed that workers earn about $1.85 an hour, put significant overtime hours to make enough money to cover living expenses. The report further claimed that the standard shift was nine hours a day, but that starting in September, staff worked an additional 20 hours of overtime each week, and goes on and on and on. So that's old news, but I, I think it illustrates just how complex all of this is, that sometimes we can actually experience prosperity that is built on the suffering and injustice of others. Now, let's keep going and kind of see what happens next. Down in chapter 4, we look at this accumulation of horses. Solomon has had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Um, I want to go back to one thing before we go on. And this is just a kind of a reflection on what I learned Tuesday night. Um, You know, last week we had uh, Charleston, or rather Charlotte. We had Tulsa. And lots of things are blowing up. Um, Friday afternoon... Uh, the fellows program had Daryl Arnold and Chief Roush in for lunch. And our guys' Bible study got to go join that. A very powerful discussion about just kind of what's happening in our country right now and the different perspectives. And it was so powerful because at the center of it were a, a Christian police chief and a Christian pastor who both love each other, both love the Lord, and both see different solutions to some of the problems. Well, one of the things that has been hardest for me to know what to do with with all this is not knowing what to do with all this. And a lot of times, as a just a middle-aged, late middle-aged white guy, when I read things about you benefit from white privilege, you, you benefit from participating in a system that oppressed people. Um, some of the, some, a book I read recently said to me, you benefit from white supremacy. Um, those are words that trigger me and make me feel like I'm being attacked. And I don't always know how to respond. I don't always know what to do. What happened Tuesday night and I'm just telling you my own journey here. I know your journey might be differently. Even though I didn't agree with everything the speaker said, for the first time, I, I think I began to sense what it meant 
to say that I'd benefited from a system that had hurt other people. And I, I know that there are a lot of edges to that, and there's a lot of complexities, and there's a lot of different ways to think about that. But for, for the first time, I, I think I understood, you know, that, that's right. As a, as a white male, I benefited from a system that oppressed other people. Well, then the question is, well, what do you do now? We'll kind of circle back to that at the, at the end of tonight. But um, what I'm trying to get across tonight, and in this whole series on Solomon, is that you can be a godly, wise person who seeks the Lord and wants to obey the Lord and you still can be influenced by systems and structures that are from Egypt. By principalities and powers that are not consistent with God's values. And the tricky thing is you don't even know it. That's kind of the point of all. And I have a Turner always asks me, now, what's the point of the sermon? Uh, so there, write that down. That was the point of the sermon. It, it's all downhill from here. But um, so the next part of the sermon talks about how wise Solomon is, and, and you know we read the Proverbs. He, he's an incredibly wise. Um, and so you ask, how could somebody this wise forget about all those verses we just saw? I mean, I'm asking that. Are you asking that? Um, seemed kind of clear. And yet, he just starts doing what is normal. He just starts doing what everybody else does. And he is the wisest man in the world. And, and I don't have a great answer to that, other than a couple of thoughts. The first is... Even the wisest people can be seduced by the enemy. <laughs> Even if you, you have God's wisdom. And Solomon, the Bible says Solomon had God's wisdom more than anybody else in the world. And yet he violates all these biblical principles as he's building his kingdom. So what that suggests to me is that even if you're very, very wise you can still be seduced by the spirit of the age. You can still be conformed to the world in ways that you don't really know. Sandy and I have been watching this great movie called All the Way. It's about Lyndon Johnson's first two years in the presidency. And the first half is about the Civil Rights Bill. And we're at the point in life where when it hits 945, we turn it off and go to bed. So we only got through the first half. So... The first half is a lot about how the Southern senators tried to block the Civil Rights Bill. And the book is built on Robert Caro's biography of LBJ. It's very, very long and goes into much detail. And the thing that struck me when I read the biography was these Southern senators were good men. You probably would have liked them. They were respected. They went to church. 
They were civil. And yet they could not see that the whole way of life they were defending was built on slavery. They just couldn't see it. And there's one moment in the film that's very painful where they're having this debate about African Americans. Of course, they use derogatory language, and an African American man is shining their shoes as they're talking about it, as if he didn't even exist. They can't see their shadow, even though they were the wisest men of their day. Well, shame on them. Mm, That's not really the point of that. Shame on me. What, What do you miss? What do I miss? That's so obvious 50 years from now. Well, I think we skipped over the part about all the horses. What's wrong with that? Everybody has an army. Right, everybody had an army. Israel wasn't supposed to. (laughs) Uh, And this is no, I don't think you can apply this to American foreign policy. America's not Israel. But if you read the book of Isaiah, there's a couple of sins that Isaiah just goes ballistic on. And one is, is that the kings in Israel keep going to foreign armies and making alliances in order to protect themselves. And at one point, there's this interesting, I think it's in Isaiah 50, there's this interesting conversation where God says, why do you all keep lighting your own fires? You know what he means by that? You know, why do you, you're lighting your own way out of the darkness. You're trying to warm yourself. You're trying to protect yourself. You're trying to guide yourself. Why do you keep lighting your own fires? Why don't you just trust in me? And that's what Solomon's doing. He's hedging his bets. He's building an army. No commentary on American military policy. America's not Israel. He's building an army when God has told him not to. He's lighting his own fires because he doesn't fully trust God to protect him. When do you light your own fire? How are you doing that in your life right now? Oh, yeah, you, you trust God. You believe God. But you got this little thing going on the side in case it doesn't work out. In chapter 5, his administrative wisdom is shown in his relationship to Hiram, the king of Tyre, and they start working on the temple building project, and we're almost done. I mean, God told them to do this, 2 Samuel 7. They make a peace. Hiram starts getting all these laborers out there. Great army of workers is assembled. They're about ready to build God a house. Then we read this in verse 13. And King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel. I have, from a former study I have in my notes, uh uh-oh. Because if you've ever read the book of Deuteronomy, one of the big no-nos, don't enslave your own people. Everybody else did that. You don't do that. That's one of the things that's going to make you distinct. You don't enslave your own people. And I find this so ironic and so troubling. He is doing what he's supposed to do. He's doing a godly thing. He's building a temple for God to be worshipped in. He's encouraging and nourishing the praises of Israel. He's exalting Yahweh. He's going to come up with a killer of a prayer here when the thing is built. 
And he's doing it with slave labor from his own people. It's just such a, this story is just so hard to preach. I mean, I wanted to do the standard Solomon sermon and just talk about he was wise and we should be wise. And when you're wise, he'll bless you. But this story is so filled with paradox and tension and yucky stuff. So his tax system and his labor policies are already running against the grain of God's plan. And urban elites are living well off of cheap labor, even as they build a glorious temple. So on the one hand, Solomon is a godly man trying to serve the Lord. But on the other, he's breaking God's laws as he builds his empire. And that kind of prosperity cannot be sustained, and within a generation, it's all gone. And this is an economic bubble that bursts after he dies, and it's gone by chapter 14. What do you do with this? Well, I'll end with two thoughts. Um, This is kind of where I've gone with it. One came at the end of the talk on Tuesday night, which which um, if you're interested in this sort of thing, he's probably on YouTube somewhere. I think it's Mark Charles, isn't that the name? Mark Charles, yeah. And again, I didn't agree with all of it, but I thought some of it was incredibly powerful. This part I definitely agreed with. At the end, he said, he challenged really all the superficial ways we try to deal with racial injustice. And one of the things I realized is we often turn to Egypt to solve these social problems. He says, don't do that. Let's start with a prolonged period of lament. As a church, let's start with a prolonged period of lament. And that was honestly one of the first times in this whole discussion about race and what to do with Charlotte and all this stuff. I just felt God saying, I'm in that. I'm, I'm, I'm about that. You're getting close to my heart now. I don't know what that looks like. The American church doesn't do a lot with lament. At least the white middle class American church doesn't do a lot with lament. But let's think about that. Would you think about that? If that resonates with you? I feel like we're just starting a journey together on that one, but that resonates with me. Second takeaway I I have from a story like this is Jesus. The wisest man in the world can't save Israel. Even though God gave him the wisdom, it's as if this story is designed to show us that we need a Savior. Because even if you go get a bunch of degrees from Harvard about community development, read all the books that you can read, your heart's in the right place. I think what this story says, you're still going to goof it up. You need a Savior. Let's end with that. <laughs>